pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. On this show, you'll hear everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, and how to cope better with stress. We'll talk about the latest research findings into the causes of mental illness and potential new treatments and review them without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the experience of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Along the way, I endeavor to better educate the general public about mental health issues and reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Well, as you know, I took last week off, and I think America's Web Radio put other programming on besides a rerun of my show, which actually I think is better. Why would you want to listen to it again if you'd heard it once? In any case, it's good to be back with you after taking last week off. This show was pre-recorded for airing initially on July 15th, 2015. And as far as what I felt was the most important story to discuss with you relating to psychiatry and mental health this past week, first up on tonight's show, a study that links Prozac and Paxil, two of the most popular antidepressants of all time, with birth defects. Now, a sweeping government study of thousands of women has found links between the older antidepressants, Prozac and Paxil, and birth defects. But, this, interestingly, the same study cleared other popular treatments in the class, including Celexa, Lexapro, and Zoloft, which is the subject of a major lawsuit over birth defect claims. Some of you may have even seen or heard infomercials from lawyers trying to gather up extra cases for the class action lawsuit involving Zoloft and claims of birth defects. This government study uh, would seem to undercut that claim. be interesting to see if it plays any role in that litigation. Earlier studies had raised questions about antidepressants, in a class of drugs known as the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, or SSRIs, prompting the United States Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, in 2005 to issue a safety warning about use of the SSRIs during pregnancy. Now, I want to mention it's very important to realize not all antidepressants are SSRIs. I'll list the ones that are for you. There's Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Luvox, Celexa, and Lexapro. That's it. No other antidepressants are just SSRIs. Uh, the others are certainly able to block the reuptake of serotonin, with the exception of Welbutrin, which doesn't work on serotonin, but they have other additional or different mechanisms and so they are not SSRIs and cannot be lumped in with all the others. Uh, this is something I think it's important to mention because there's a lot of misconceptions 
about antidepressants and uh, the lay media really botched this much of the time, even labeling Welbutrin an SSRI at times, which is preposterous since, as I just mentioned, Welbutrin doesn't touch the serotonin pathways in the brain at all. Now, getting back to this latest study about Prozac, Paxil, and birth defects, uh, it was published on July the 8th in the British Medical Journal. Researchers at the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta wanted to see if the birth defect risk affected the entire class of drugs or only select treatments. A very good idea, such a thoughtful study would give doctors and patients reassurance as to what was relatively safer to take or not than others. Now, for this study, researchers asked nearly 28,000 women if they took Celexa, Lexapro, Prozac, Paxil, or Zoloft. See, they didn't even include Luvox, but um, even though it's only approved for use in OCD, Luvox is an SSRI. Uh, they asked the women if they had taken these drugs any time from one month before they conceived through the third month of their pregnancy. And then they analyzed which women bore children with birth defects. Now, 28,000 women, that's a very good uh, sample size. And uh, with such a large sample size to analyze the data from, you're much more likely to get reliable information. What they found was that many popular antidepressants, Celexa, Lexapro, or Zoloft, are not associated with birth defects. Only two in the study, Prozac and Paxil, were implicated. Now, in women who took those two drugs early in pregnancy, birth defects occurred two to three and a half times more frequently compared with women who did not take them. Prozac use was associated with a birth defect in which a baby's skull is misshapen. Paxil use was associated with a defect in which a baby's intestines protrude outside the body and with anencephaly in which a baby is missing parts of the brain and skull. Also, both Paxil and Prozac were linked to a heart defect. Now, the uh, interesting things about these findings. First of all, Paxil uh, had been the only antidepressant that had its safety in pregnancy rating downgraded from category C to category D, meaning uh, it was considered to be even less safe than any other antidepressant in pregnancy. Every other antidepressant was category C. Uh, the down rating of, to a D was because of heart defects. Uh, so this isn't the first time a study has found Paxil to be associated with heart-related uh, birth defects. But the findings about Prozac, this is absolutely stunning. This is an incredible development. Uh, Prozac was the first of the newest generation of antidepressants. It's been around the longest. Uh, came out around 1988. So many tens of millions of women have taken it. 
resulting in thousands and thousands and thousands of pregnancies while taking the drug. And up until now, there was no increased signal with Prozac in terms of birth defects. In fact, because there had been so many exposures with it having been the most popular antidepressant for so many years, a lot of doctors, including psychiatrists and uh, OBGYNs who are uh, treating their patients who are pregnant and delivering their babies and, and pediatricians who are treating infants who are uh, being breastfed by their mothers who are taking Prozac, had, I think, a sense of comfort and ease with it since it had been around the longest, since so many women had taken it, and, again, no strong signal of birth defects. So this study is really ground-shaking in terms of, wow, what will patients do now, and what will doctors recommend for women of reproductive age? And what will they do if a woman taking Prozac, and now also Paxil, um, becomes pregnant? Now, the study's authors noted that the risks of these birth defects appear to be small. For example, in women who took Paxil early in pregnancy, the risk for the anencephaly defect rose from two cases per 10,000 to seven per 10,000. <clears> well, while that may be a small increase, statistically that is quite an increase in margin. Again, this is why they're saying two to three and a half times greater. The analysis was only able to show links between the drugs and birth defects, but it's important to note this doesn't prove that the drugs caused the deformities. All you can do is observe the association and uh, draw some conclusions. Now, the authors called the findings about Zoloft reassuring because the drug was used by some 40% of the women in the study who said they had used an antidepressant in early pregnancy. Now, why is it that such a large percentage of the women were taking Zoloft? Well, for one thing, it's been an extremely popular antidepressant for many, many years. It's very effective against a broad range of symptoms, not just depression, but lots of different types of anxiety, such as social anxiety, panic attacks, post-traumatic stress. Also, Pfizer, the manufacturer of the original uh, brand name version of Zoloft, were unique in being very aggressive in marketing the drug to OBGYNs. Uh, Zoloft came out in the uh, early to mid-1990s, and up until then, the pharmaceutical companies who were selling antidepressants didn't go out of their way to market their medications to OBGYNs. Pfizer shrewdly realized that many, many women don't see another primary care physician besides their OBGYN, and they just get treatment for anything and everything that they need from their OBGYN. And so they realized, hey, you know, we should uh, market this drug to OBGYNs, and this was very successful. A large number of women had uh, received Zoloft for anxiety or depression from their OBGYN, and to this very day in my practice, I see a woman 
who is currently taking Zoloft or has taken it in the past, chances are better than even that it was originally prescribed to them by their OBGYN. Uh, now, again, it does seriously undercut any claims that Zoloft uh, is prone to causing birth defects. Uh, certainly doesn't help uh, the lawsuit in that way. Uh, but now what happens with Prozac and Paxil? So it be very interesting to see what impact this study has. Uh, so as always, I'll keep you up to date in terms of any information about treating psychiatric illness in women of reproductive age and how it affects them during pregnancy, how it affects the unborn fetus and the newborn. We'll take a commercial break right here and be right back with more mental health-related news. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's show, you often hear me talk about winter depression or seasonal affective disorder, and uh, I often talk about how to cope with these shorter days and fall and winter, well, it turns out that 
Some people get seasonal affective disorder in the summer. Uh, seasonal affective disorder, known by the APT acronym SAD for SAD, is usually thought of as winter depression, but it happens in the summer as well, and something you may not have been aware of. So when I saw this article about it, I thought, well, this is very timely since we're right smack in the middle of summer. And I'm about where you are, but a hot one down here. Anyway, this is a, a brief reminder going over this uh, article, not to assume everyone experiences the world the same way most of us do. Uh, though you may be pumped up for the sunshiny days of summer, there's a small minority for whom summer is depressing. The seasonal affective disorder that we typically associated with winter happens to some people in the summer, not very many. Like its winter twin, the summertime version of seasonal depression could be described as an exaggerated version of the way the seasons make most of us feel. Winter depressives tend to eat a lot and sleep a lot. Think hibernation, for example. Summer depressives, on the other hand, lose their appetite and struggle with insomnia. So it's kind of like the pattern most brains and bodies follow. Even people without these conditions feel sleepier in winter and have a harder time sleeping in the longer days of summer. But in both summer and winter depressives, it reaches a pathological extreme. Summer SAD is not as common as the winter version, which itself only affects an estimated 5% of Americans. The summer kind is thought to account for just 10% of all SAD cases by some estimates. And because it's uncommon, summertime SAD has largely been overlooked by scientists who study seasonal affective disorder. In the 25 years since it was first described, seasonal affective disorder has been the subject of more than 1,000 studies. However, SAD researchers have narrowly focused on winter SAD. Very little was learned about summer SAD. Consequently, scientists don't have a good idea of how to treat summertime depression. Winter SAD can usually be managed with light box therapy, in which someone has brief daily exposure to light that simulate, simu easy for me to say, simulates daylight, since the disorder is thought to be triggered by the season's lack of sunlight. So someone undergoing light box therapy would sit near a uh, specialized light box designed to give full-spectrum light, uh, light from the sun, except without the harmful UV rays. And they don't have to be staring right at it. It just has to be shining on them. And the therapy is best administered first thing in the morning so that it doesn't interfere with your sleep-wake, daylight, night, dark cycle, um, and, and cause you to have insomnia. But 
What exactly causes summertime depression? Is it the heat or too much sunlight or both? Well, anecdotally, according to the researchers and the experts, it seems to be the bright light. Some of people who suffer with summer SAD say things like, the light cuts through me like a knife. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Um, if people who have winter SAD are unusually sensitive to the lack of sunlight late in the day and they want to sleep more and they get depressed with the shorter days, then it follows, doesn't it, logically, that those with summer SAD would get depressed when it stays light too late in the evening and they therefore have insomnia. It's as if their sleep cycle uh, is very sensitive to the changes in light. If it gets dark earlier, as in winter, uh, these people go to sleep earlier or want to and want to sleep more. And conversely, in the summertime, when it doesn't get dark until much later, uh, these people can't sleep. Uh, just to put in perspective how late it stays light in the summer, uh, just think about the fireworks on July the 4th. Uh, in most places, they don't start until 9 o'clock. I mean, here in metro Atlanta, they can't start much before 9.30, 9.45. It's just not dark enough before then. So you're talking about um, staying light very late in the evening. That's probably what's making it hard for these people to sleep, the those who suffer from summer SAD. So then what is the treatment approach? Well, if you take the opposite approach to getting more light for winter SAD, what would you do? Stay inside with the curtains drawn, fans and air conditioning operating at full blast? Well, even if you found that an acceptable way to live, the relief, it turns out, from the summer depression would be fleeting. The trouble with this cold therapy or, or dark therapy, I guess, as opposed to light therapy, is that it doesn't seem to last. If you're in the dark, cool, air-conditioned environment, it helps while you're in it, but then when you go outside, well, then all of a sudden these patients are hit by a, a wall of heat and then, of course, the light, which, like we just described, cuts right through them. Therefore, any benefit gained from the time indoors in the cool disappears. With winter depression, there is at least the small comfort that everyone else is hunkered down in their apartments. With summer depression, on the other hand, that can feel very isolating, like you're missing out on some big party. Uh, so what if the summer depressive is hiding in a dark room they feel like they're not part of this great uh, enjoyment and activities that's going on outdoors, swimming pools, going for hikes. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, otherwise known as NAMI, a, a leading mental health patient and family advocacy organization, an even smaller fraction of people experience seasonal depression in both summer and winter, while feeling fine each fall and spring 
around the equinoxes. Wow, so there you have it. Um, a, a broad spectrum of seasonal effects on mood, uh, right down to only feeling well in fall and spring. I think the solution is not to tell a summer depressive to stay inside in the dark and cool. I mean, they're missing out on life that way. That, that's, that's just ridiculous. Uh, I think the way to attack the problem would be to have them darken their house and their room where they go to sleep aggressively so that they can maintain uh, a better chance of having a normal sleep-wake cycle, uh, even though the light-dark cycle is shifted so far ahead from their normal day-night um, sleep-wake times. Um, this is not unlike what people who work late shifts have to do. Uh, people who work uh, the overnight shift, the graveyard shift, um, in order to be successful in coming home first thing in the morning and going to sleep when everyone else is getting up and going to work, they often have to resort to um, extra dark curtains, um, you know, sleeping with um, eye masks and things like that. And, and so I think with the summer depressives, the key is uh, getting them into a dark environment um, early enough so that their body will be better prepared for sleep. If they are not suffering the insomnia that is associated with the uh, summer seasonal affective disorder, then uh, I think they will be less prone to be depressed and uh, more interested and motivated in being outside during the day, even with the heat and participating in life. Um, getting a good night's sleep fixes a lot. And uh, I definitely think that would be the way to attack the problem. Uh, but again, no one really has done any work or research on this. So I have to admit uh, my advice is uh, speculative. I can't base that on um, any controlled studies that have been done. Uh, of course, um, antidepressant medication can also be helpful for depression from any reason, whether it's from seasonal changes or not and whether it's from seasonal changes from winter or summer, regardless. And uh, furthermore, psychotherapy has found to be helpful uh, for seasonal affective disorder in the winter, and there's no reason to expect it wouldn't also be helpful for people who suffer it in the summer. Uh, but uh, again, I think until and unless there are uh, controlled studies that are done and more research on this uh, admittedly small number of people with summer depression, my suggestion uh, would be to try it and see if it helps uh, to you know, get your room uh, very dark, uh, start spending time in the dark, a good hour before your normal bedtime, and um, make sure your environment's uh, very dark that you stay in leading up to going to bed, and uh, that should improve sleep and, and therefore secondarily should improve mood. Well, so there you have it. And uh, just a, a word of caution to those of you who have winter depression. Uh, it's July 15th now that I'm recording this podcast. You can tell that the days start to get 
noticeably shorter as early as mid-August. Uh, so never too early to be prepared for that. Um, in another month or two or more, you might have to start dusting off those light boxes. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll be, we'll be back with more mental health-related news. After that, this is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on tonight's show, we have a military mental health update. And uh, again, fortunately, the military has been paying more attention to the markedly higher rate of suicides in the military compared with the civilian population in an effort to stem uh, this tide of terrible loss. Uh, so here we have the latest study about this issue Wartime suicide attempts in the Army are most common in newer enlisted soldiers who have not been deployed, while officers are less likely to try to end their lives. At both levels, attempts are more common among men, uh, I'm sorry, correction, more common among women. Again, we mentioned that at both levels, officers and newer enlisted soldiers, attempts are more common among women and also those without a high school diploma. Now, this latest study is billed as the most comprehensive analysis of a problem that has plagued the U.S. military in recent years. Suicides in the military have gotten the most attention, but suicide attempts are more prevalent and sometimes have different contributing factors. Now, the idea that there is a higher rate in newer enlisted soldiers 
who have not yet even gone their first deployment uh, is certainly uh, new information. Uh, up until now, it was thought that soldiers with multiple deployments were more at risk, especially those who developed serious uh, interpersonal and financial problems back home. This latest study analyzed records are nearly 10,000 suicide attempts among almost 1 million active duty army members during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq from 2004 through 2009. That compares with 569 army suicide deaths during the same period reported by researchers last year in a different phase of the same study. Rates for both increased during that time. This new research was published recently in the journal JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry. Some key points. Suicide attempts versus deaths from suicide. Suicide attempts and deaths were more common among enlisted soldiers than officers. The new research found an attempt rate of 377 per 100,000 among enlisted soldiers versus almost 28 per 100,000 among officers. You can see drastically less among officers rather than the enlisted soldiers. Attempts and suicide deaths were more common among whites than blacks and Hispanics, among those with no college education, and those at early stages of their army careers. Recent diagnosis of mental illness was another common characteristic, and that bears out the results of earlier studies on suicides in the military in general that an existing diagnosis of mental illness is definitely a risk factor. Now, the uh, gender differences. Compared with army men, attempts were more common in women, but deaths were less common. And I have to say that mirrors uh, the gender differences in the civilian population. Attempts were more common, but deaths were less common in soldiers who weren't deployed versus the currently deployed. Suicide attempts and completed suicides have different predictors in most studies. They may, in fact, represent different disorders related to suicide. Now, would de being deployed have any protective factor at all if, uh, if that were the case? Uh, one could speculate that the close-knit camaraderie of being with one's unit in a deployment uh, would provide a social support system that perhaps uh, might protect someone against attempting or completing suicides. Now, comparing these suicide attempt and suicide death rates with civilian populations is difficult because of differences in the methods used. The study cites non-fatal self-injury rates for United States men aged 18 to 34 during the same period of time, about 214 per 100,000, 
and slightly higher rates for women, but these only involve injuries treated in hospital emergency rooms and may include self-injuries that weren't suicide attempts. In recent years, Army suicide rates have surpassed civilian rates, although military estimates are generally lower than others. And what about prevention efforts? The new results will help the Army identify which prevention programs are most beneficial. Suicide attempts can lead to a medical discharge, but they are not grounds for automatic dismissal. Early career soldiers may be particularly vulnerable because of trouble adjusting to military life and anxiety over potentially being deployed to combat. An atmosphere that encourages mental toughness may discourage some suicidal soldiers from seeking help. There is promising results with an intervention that uses military-sounding names for traditional behavior therapy models, thus reducing some of the stigma associated with encouraging and directing soldiers to get treatment. For example, dubbing the HOPE box method of focusing on positive thoughts, a survival kit, and calling special relaxation techniques tactical breathing made them more appealing to soldiers. Uh, it didn't seem uh, to have the, the, the same uh, stigma. So, you know, whatever it takes, uh, I think that would uh, make it more likely that soldiers would get help for their problems is fine. If relaboring, relabeling things into more military-sounding terms will do the trick, great. Great idea. Should have been thought up sooner. Um, but the bottom line is we are finally paying more attention and putting greater emphasis and study into the me mental health of our military. Uh, it's long overdue and uh, finally starting to turn the tide um, toward prevention um, <clears throat> as opposed to what has happened up until now which is trying to pick up the pieces after uh, combat or other aspects of military service result in acute uh, mental health problems. Next up on psychiatry today, I saw the study about how with women who have bipolar disorder, sleep quality affects mood. Now, um, they said that poor sleep is associated with negative mood in women with bipolar disorder. Uh, this research was done at Penn State College of Medicine and also University of Michigan Medical School. And this caught my eye because it's rather intuitive that poor sleep quality will disrupt mood in bipolar disorder patients. Uh, Regardless of which gender, um, if you don't get enough sleep and you have bipolar disorder, this is going to lead to at least hypomania or mania. And uh, mania is an extremely elevated mood state, the opposite of depression. 
can be characterized by extreme euphoria or elation, can also be characterized by uh, extreme rage. But regardless, uh, this is what happens if someone in bipolar uh, mood states doesn't get enough sleep. And so I was intrigued by the study, why uh, are women with bipolar disorder different? And um, how did the researchers find this out? So let's uh, talk about their findings. Of course, bipolar disorder, you know, is a brain disorder. It causes unusual shifts in mood, energy, activity levels, and the ability to carry out day-to-day -day tasks. The condition is, as I said, marked by extreme mood episodes, characterized either as manic highs, depressive lows, or mixed states, where a patient would have uh, features of both extremes of mood simultaneously. Sleep problems are common in people with bipolar disorder, and poor sleep quality and bipolar disorder appear to aggravate each other. Previous research shows that poor sleep quality is a symptom of both depressive and manic episodes, and as I said before, that the lack of sleep can trigger mania. Patients with bipolar disorder often suffer with sleep problems, even when many of their other symptoms are well controlled. Improving sleep could not only better improve their quality of life, but also help them to avoid mood episodes. Finding the best treatments for sleep disorders in people with bipolar disorder meant investigating differences between women and men with the condition. Women and men sleep differently. We know from studies of the general population that women have a different type of sleep architecture than men, and they're at different risks for sleep disorders, particularly during the reproductive years. Okay, so there's one difference between women and uh, men bipolar patients, uh, the differences in the architecture of sleep between the two genders. And the researchers also say that women and men also experience bipolar disorder differently. Women often have more persistent uh, and more depressive symptoms, as well as a number of other coexisting conditions, such as anxiety, eating disorders, and migraine headaches. Men tend to have shorter episodes and more time in between episodes. So there are also differences in the characteristics of the course of the illness between the two genders as well. We're going to take another commercial break here. We'll examine the researchers' specific findings and have more mental health-related news when we come back. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. 
Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Currently, the topic is bipolar disorder and how women are uniquely affected by their sleep quality in terms of their mood when they suffer from bipolar disorder. Now, researchers analyzed data from 216 participants. They looked at the effect of sleep quality at the beginning of the study on mood outcome over the next two years. That's a pretty good follow-up period, more likely to get good data that way. They measured mood outcome by the severity, frequency, and variability of depressive or manic symptoms. Variability meant how much the individuals went up and down in terms of their mood symptoms. For women, poor sleep predicted increased severity and frequency of depression and increased severity and variability of mania. Among men, baseline depression score and a personality trait called neuroticism were stronger predictors of mood outcome than sleep quality. Now this research was published in the Journal of Affective Disorders. One unanswered question is why poor sleep affects women with bipolar disorder more than men. There could be a biological mechanism at work. There is some suggestion from animal models that reproductive hormones affect their circadian rhythm system which is a biological system that affects our need to sleep. Circadian rhythms refers to uh, how our bodies function on this 24-hour clock. And it could be that the reproductive hormones are biologically affecting sleep in women 
and therefore also affecting mood outcomes, or it could have more to do with the type of sleep that women are getting. Uh, so very interesting findings that the poor sleep quality affected the severity of both depression and mania uh, in women, but in men, sleep quality was not a significant predictor of uh, variability of these mood symptoms. But the, uh, the issue is this. From this study, the message is clear. It's extremely important for clinicians and patients to recognize that sleep quality is an important factor that needs to be treated in patients with bipolar disorder, particularly in women. But I definitely do not feel, uh, in fact, I feel strongly that this study does not let men off the hook. Uh, they also, men with bipolar disorder, also need to pay very close attention to getting enough sleep or their mood swings will also be worse. Now, I know that uh, I always am careful to discuss with my patients who suffer from bipolar disorder that it's very important to make sure they get enough sleep, uh, that lack of sleep can exacerbate mood swings and especially put someone at risk for flipping into a manic episode. Uh, just to put the effect of <clears throat> lack of sleep into perspective, a very seldom obscure and little used intervention to get someone with very, very severe intractable depression that's just persistent and constant out of such a severe mood state is a night of sleep deprivation. Purposely keeping such a patient awake all night using any means necessary, usually lots of caffeine, uh, will typically, um, in many cases anyway, get them out of such a severe, persistent state of depression. Uh, so that should tell you something about the mood uh, elevating effects of lack of sleep that someone with bipolar disorder is vulnerable to. Uh, I always tell my bipolar patients, guard your sleep jealously uh, because that's what it's going to take to uh, help keep your mood stable. Uh, so if any of you listening to this have bipolar disorder yourself, uh, you'd best heed that advice, or if someone close to you has it, uh, you'd best suggest uh, to them that they heed that advice. Now, this next study I want to tell you about has to do with the finding of uh, the certain area of the brain and uh, changes in it that some researchers found. And I just want to say before I talk to you about it in detail, the reason I'm bringing it up, uh, it relates to the whole issue of the stigma of mental illness and uh, people who have prejudices and ignorances against those who suffer from mental illness uh, claiming that psychiatric illness isn't real, it's just in someone's head, that they just need to, quote, get over it, it's not a real problem, it's not a physical problem. Well, of course, people who uh, don't have these mistaken ideas know that's not true, 
But just in case anyone wanted more evidence that depression is a real illness, and it's very, very much a physical illness, okay, here comes a study that shows that in patients with recurrent depression, a small structure in the temporal lobe called the, the temporal lobe of the brain, that is, called the hippocampus, is smaller than normal. The brains of people with recurrent depression have a significantly smaller hippocampus, it turns out. The hippocampus is a part of the brain, again, in the temporal lobe, associated with forming new memories. And it's significantly smaller in those with recurring episodes of depression than those who do not have any depression. And this is according to a new global study of nearly 9,000 people that was published recently in the journal Molecular Psychiatry. This research is the largest international study to compare brain volumes in people with and without major depression. It highlights the need to identify and treat depression effectively when it first occurs, particularly among teenagers and young adults. Using magnetic resonance image or MRI brain scans and clinical data from 1,728 people with major depression and 7,199 healthy individuals, the study combined 15 data sets from Europe, the United States, and Australia. Major depression is a common condition affecting at least one in six people during their lifetime. It is a serious clinical mood disorder in which feelings of sadness, frustration, loss, or anger interfere with a person's everyday life for weeks, months, or years at a time. And of course, in the worst cases, the ultimate complication is death by suicide. The key finding that people with major depression have a smaller hippocampus confirms earlier clinical work. In this study, the key finding was largely explained by subjects with recurrent depression. People with recurrent depression represented 65% of study subjects with major depression. People with an early age of onset of major depression, that is before the age of 21, also had a smaller hippocampus than healthy individuals, consistent with the notion that many of these young people go on to have recurrent disorders during their lifetime. However, people who had a first episode of major depression that was 34% of the study subjects did not have a small hippocampus than healthy individuals indicating that the changes are due to the adverse effects of depressive illness on the brain over the course of recurrent episodes. And it may be just that one episode isn't enough to do that much damage, that it's cumulative over time after multiple episodes. According to researchers, this large study confirms the need to treat first episodes of depression effectively particularly in teenagers and young adults, to prevent the brain changes that accompany recurrent depression. 
I think it also argues in favor of maintaining treatment to prevent further episodes. Uh, this is another issue besides the stigma that depression isn't a real illness, it's not physical. The, the notion that people should stop their medication for depression after they feel better, uh, if we know that there's brain damage literally from recurring episodes, I think that makes a stronger argument for saying, you know what, stay on your antidepressant medication to prevent future episodes and uh, therefore protect your brain. This new finding of the smaller volume of the hippocampus in people with major depression may offer some support to what's called the neurotrophic hypothesis of depression. This hypothesis argues that a range of neurobiological processes such as Elevated glucocorticoid levels in those with chronic depression may induce brain shrinkage. Uh, in English, this means stress hormones um, <clears throat> that increase the level of cortisol, which is uh, what promotes these glucocorticoids. Uh, the stress hormones from a depressive episode damage the brain, and it's well known that these stress hormones particularly do their damage in the area of the hippocampus in the brain. So really, I think this study does two things. Um, it reminds those of us who don't understand what depression is, that it is a real illness. It is a very, very much physical illness. And you can, with uh, simple brain imaging techniques, document damage to the brain from recurring episodes of depression, uh, damage that you do not see in people who have not suffered from depression. Uh, and also, as I said, I think it makes a good argument for staying on your antidepressant medication. Even people who wind up accepting treatment for depression uh, with medication, including, will feel like, well, I don't want to stay on it indefinitely. I'm feeling better. Can I stop taking it? Well, maybe if they knew that recurring episodes can become cumulative in terms of damage to the structure in the brain, they might think twice about not wanting to stay on the medication. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. I hope that you enjoyed this information that I enjoyed bringing to you and found it informative, and I hope you have a wonderful stress-free week till we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.